millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And this is the Mankind Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into masculinity, exploring what being a man actually means, along with a variety of brilliant guests. You know, men talking about men is a notoriously underrepresented area of podcasting. Not anymore. So in a stroke of professional podcasting, we actually did introduce the correct guest last week. And this week we do have Tom Daly. Yes, we certainly do. Tom Daly, the actual the guy, the diver. The actual guy that dives off things. And it's also... Christmas this week, which is exciting. Yes. What does this sound like? I think I can hear a certain someone on his way <laughs> with reindeer slightly early or late. Depends when you're listening to this. It could also be 2021 if we even make it that far. There is some magic in the air, put it that way. Obviously, you might not celebrate Christmas, so happy non-denominational Christmas celebration holiday time. Happy Tom Daly episode. That's one thing we can say for everyone. We might make mistakes because we're new at podcasting. We'll figure it out as we go, I'm sure. <laughs> that's the spirit. Yeah. <laughs> the first question will be yeah, asking you who you are. We feel that's a gettable one to warm you up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Michael, uh, we've established that we're pretty good at intros and stuff. We're, we're just very slick, mm-hmm. accomplished podcasters. So um, I'd like you to just get cracking here with Tom. Okay, cool. Um <clears throat> Good, good start. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> so this week we have Tom Daly, and I'm pretty sure everyone will know exactly who you are. But Tom, could you please introduce yourself to the people who've been living under rocks? To the tiny number of people <laughs> who are scratching their heads. You never know. My name is Tom Daly. Like you said, I'm an Olympic diver. I dive in the 10 meter platform, a um, couple of Olympic medals and proud dad. How about that? couple of olympic medals like what a thing to be able to just like throw off just a couple whatever (laughs) you must get asked this constantly tom but i'm immediately going to ask where you have your medals because that's the sort of thing that a non-olympian does wonder i'm actually sat in my kitchen right now and i have a like a trophy cabinet type thing and they're just in there so you know any burglars are out there now now know where they are so (laughs) that's great quite often people are like you know pretend to not care about them and they're like oh it's in the toilet or something but no he's got a trophy cabinet yeah well Lance and Oscar's in the toilet <laughs> not in the toilet I'm assuming next to it yeah next like it's in the bathroom let's just say <laughs> it'd be a power move just to chuck it straight in the toilet wouldn't it? <laughs> so we have so much to talk about with you but the first question I suppose is what was the first time that you sort of realized that masculinity and being a man when did you realize that was like a thing 
I think as any queer kid growing up, you notice it from the very get-go. I went to primary school and had, I think the ratio of boys to girls were like, it was 26 girls and five boys or something right. crazy like that. So really, yeah. And I didn't really notice that, you know, all my friends were girls, you know, I didn't really connect on the same way with the guys, you know, they were kicking around a football. I was like, no, let's go do handstands in the field and make daisy chains. And it wasn't until, you know, as I got older, maybe in like year five and year six so when I was like 10 and I started traveling more with diving and just experiencing the way that people would talk down on queer people just with like little um little comments I mean I didn't know that much about myself at that point in my life obviously but I knew that I was different I knew that I felt like an outsider and I knew that I felt like I wasn't the same as the guys running around wanting to play rugby and video games and, you know, being all bro -y. That just wasn't ever who I was. But all of the people around me never, ever, ever made me feel it wasn't okay to be like that. Everyone almost encouraged it. Everyone, like, just thought it was really fun and exciting. And especially when I was at diving, it was just such a, an accepting atmosphere. So it wasn't probably until I went to secondary school that you realize, oh, maybe... Uh, I'm not the typical definition of what a man should be, but what is that? Well, that's the sort of thing we're interested in talking about, really. And I was going to ask whether getting into diving as early as you did, whether that gave you a kind of, you know, a community where you were felt more yourself than you might do, like at school or something. Yeah, I mean, with diving, it was always, you know, people just don't care. We were there to dive and we enjoyed what we were doing. And, you know, I did lots of sports growing up. I did tennis. I did squash. I did judo and, of course, diving. And I had to choose between diving and judo because those were the two that I was best at. So they're obviously two very different dynamics. Um, Hard to combine them, I suppose. It's one or the other, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I got injured in judo and my coach in diving was like, well, you need to decide what you're doing right now because you ain't coming into diving training injured from judo because that's not how it's going to work. You're like the opposite of me. My parents tried to get me to do sports when I was young because I was just so averse to doing absolutely anything. Eventually we settled on fencing because I thought it was quite wow. fast. But then I ran into a wall, broke my shoulder and never went back. <laughs> that oh. was sort of it for me. Yeah, I, I suppose if you don't like the idea of sport, fencing is sort of halfway between sport and just like fighting in a war. Which is, yeah. But like in a fun war, like when no one gets hurt. Yeah, a war where you're sort of doing quite a lot of flitting about with, yeah. with a weird, impractical weapon. What's interesting, Tom, is what you've just said is that you didn't feel like you kind of fitted in with the kind of bros, which like 100% I can relate to but also you were really into sports which is often not a very familiar narrative that's out there as young queer people getting into sports did you ever feel like there was a barrier there yeah i mean well let's be real i don't particularly like sports okay <laughs> i like particular sports um like i never have been a fan of football i mean i mean i appreciate how much training they do and how good they are at what they do but you know, football, rugby, that kind of stuff never, ever, ever appealed to me. I just can't find a football fan to talk to on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't think you will, though. <laughs> but to be honest, it was more the fact that I liked the sports that were so... I'm a perfectionist. Mm. And I think you'll find that a lot of queer kids do find themselves to be quite meticulous about what they do and how... Like, I felt like I wanted to have this sense of overachieving to hide the fact that I felt different and I think lots of people might feel that way when they're growing up and diving was a way of being able to do a skill and then keep practicing it until it was absolutely perfect and that just seemed to like you know fit in with my personality and I I'm, you know as I'm older now I realize more and more 
why my personality is that way. I mean, for example, taking up knitting and crochet and stuff like that at the beginning of lockdown <laughs> and then becoming a perfectionist to try and be the best that I possibly can at it. So those are the kind of sports that I like to do. It's more the fact of training a skill where you practice it and practice it until you can be perfect at it. I find that fascinating for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's not every day you get to hear an Olympic medalist say, don't really like sport. Yeah, that's the title of the podcast, I think. <laughs> I don't like sport with Tom Daly. <laughs> but also, I'm interested in your relationship with sort of like pressure and competition and stuff because I think what you what you said about having to be sort of very good at something or find like a vocation to cover the fact you're different is something that we will hear from other people who grew up queer and stuff but very few people choose something as demanding or as specifically demanding as diving where obviously you can be a perfectionist and become great at it but there's a lot of pressure around that like it feels like quite a stressful thing to try and make yourself the best at basically did you always find it an escape or were there times when like the competitiveness of it brought its own problems i mean diving in itself i mean i mean it still terrifies me to this day i mean i still don't quite understand why i stand 10 meters above the water on a concrete platform throwing myself off like and a matter of inches away from the platform to hitting my head and then landing in the water. Every time I watch it on TV, I think, what the hell is he doing up there? <laughs> Honestly, uh, trust me, that's what goes on inside my head. It's just one of those things that, yeah, it comes with pressure. And I think, I, I don't know, I almost feel like being a queer kid and growing up, feeling those pressures and feeling those anxieties almost prepared me in a weird way to deal with the pressure of sport and deal with the pressure of expectation going into Olympic Games, going into major competitions, because... You know, I felt those pressures and anxieties my whole life. And for me, diving was one thing that I could just be a diver. And I was judged for exactly what I was doing on the diving board, not who I was as a person. So for me, it always felt like an escape, even though there was an immense amount of pressure. It was just a matter of me being able to enjoy doing something where didn't feel like I was ever being judged for who I am. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I sort of imagined it, that diving would pile extra pressure on you to mm. be perfect. But in fact, life was like training for the diving. Yeah, and I think I like what you're talking about expectation there. Outside of diving then, have you ever felt pressure to conform to some sort of masculine stereotypes? And what would they be? I mean, I think everybody has. And I think it takes a very long time for people to get comfortable in their own skin about who they are and just being able to not care about what anyone else thinks. And to be honest, it's taken me really until, you know, I, I came out when I was uh, 19. I mean, it's coming up for, well, in December, it'll be uh, seven years. So, but it's one of those things that I, I feel like now that I'm 26, I'm a parent, that that just put things into so much more perspective than I had when I was younger. Uh, but in terms of masculinity, yeah, I mean, there's certain things that I, like, I was always really paranoid about my voice when I was growing up. And Same. Really? This is interesting, both yeah, of you. I feel like it was the giveaway, you know, because you always hear about people saying, oh, he sounds really gay. Oh, he must be gay. Mm. And it's like, growing up with that, it's like, well, you can't help the way you talk. It's just the way you talk. So little things like that. So listening to interviews or listening back to radio shows, I've just learned to avoid. <laughs> I think that voice thing is something that's really interesting because Mark did a very quizzical face because he hasn't really learned that. But it, it's from... Yet another sector of the gay experience that I would never have thought of, quite yeah, honestly. Yeah, I think when you're growing up, people expect... There's certain things that are assigned as gay, aren't there? And I don't know how you felt, Tom, but a part of me was like, I don't want to prove them right, even though they are right. I don't want to come out and be like, well, yeah, you're correct. They don't get to win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're talking about having perspective, which I think is really interesting, especially now. I think we've all had a lot of time to sit inside and stare at the walls and have a think about our lives. Yeah, perspective is one word for it. <laughs> but um, looking back at just after you'd come out, 
Were there different pressures then? Were there different expectations that you felt? I mean, I was terrified the day that I came out because I had no idea how it was going to go. I had agents and managers telling me not to do it, saying, oh, it's going to, you know, it's going to ruin your career. You're not going to get any sponsors. All of your fan base is going to go away and it's going to be terrible. And, you know, so all of, and I was like, you know what? I just don't care. I don't want to live being constantly in fear of being caught out. I'd never want to be seen as lying or avoiding the truth. Just little things like that. It was just like, you know what? I just need to be me. And yes, it comes with certain pressures now. I think after coming out, I feel a certain responsibility to try and help any young queer kid that might have felt the way that I did growing up and may have felt the way that I did in sport, maybe felt outside, maybe like their family might not understand it, you know, and now that there's more ways to be able to access things through social media, just being able to see me, my husband and my son go about our life. Like if I saw that when I was younger, thinking that I could have a family and grow up and be successful and know that it wouldn't hinder who I was and who I was going to become, then, you know, it would have made me, well, one, worry a lot less, to have less of these dark thoughts about myself. And I think that's where it's really important that, you know, I feel like everyone that is out and in the public eye has a responsibility to share their personal stories because sharing those personal stories can help change the hearts of so many people um, around the world that may not quite understand it. And if you can change a heart, you can change a mind. And if you can ch- start changing minds and change the way people think about queer people and what the definition of a man is, then I think people can start to relate to people and see on the surface, we may all look completely different, that there is something similar about each and every one of us that we can connect with on some level. And I think that's the important part. I think you're absolutely right. I completely agree. And having like even the fact that you've just said my husband and my son in a sentence is an amazing achievement looking back. Yeah, 20 years ago, when I was still a teenager, I would have been absolutely like startled to hear someone say yeah. that. And that is a sign of how things can change with people like, like Tom in the yeah. public eye. Who were your role models when you were growing up? My diving idol growing up, there were two. Leon John Taylor, who was a, a British diver, who um, did amazingly well and was one of the Olympic medalists in 2004. So that in diving, but also, um, I don't know if you've heard of him, Greg Luganis. And he... Yeah, I have, yeah. I was doing that thing where, because I have heard of someone, I immediately want to show off. But I, I think it's probably best that it comes from a diver. <laughs> <laughs> he is still, to this day, the most successful diver in terms of being able to get multiple gold medals in the same Olympics. He... Uh, it's probably most famous for the fact that he hit his head on the diving board in the Seoul Olympics. Oh, that was the first time I ever heard about him. Yeah, I saw that on TV when I was eight. Yeah. And uh, it's the sort of thing you never forget, really. And that is what goes through a normal person's head watching you get up there every time. Exactly. I mean, he so he did that in the prelim rounds and then he went to win the gold medal the next day. But at the time, he, was, he wasn't out, but he was gay and HIV positive. And, mm. you know, I can't even imagine what it might have felt like to hit your head, have blood going in the pool, no one knowing that you were gay, no one knowing that you were HIV positive, all of these things. And it wasn't until I started reading his book when I was about 12, 13, that I was like, oh my gosh, I can relate to him on so many levels, feeling like I want to tell people, but I can't tell people, people wouldn't understand, like, will I lose sponsorship? All of these things that you, you know, straight kids growing up just don't have to think about you just you know obviously everybody has lots of different pressures and stresses in their lives and anxieties it's not just about your sexuality that people worry about but as a queer kid growing up knowing that there was someone that was feeling like that 
Um, you know, he came out obviously after he retired, but I think having queer people in sport in particular can really shine a light. And I think, you know, there's all this talk about in football that there must be other LGBT athletes within the footballing system, but it's a really tough place to come out because the fans might not be as accepting. Some of the teammates might not be as accepting. So it's, it's more about people stepping outside of comfort zone and stepping outside of what the norm is to help try and move the needle of progress forward. Uh, I think it's a really interesting thing, this. Tom, and I'm a huge sports fan. I read um, Gregor Gaines's book as an adult. And I, just as you said, I was amazed by the number of pressures on him that I would never have been conscious of and, and with which he lived his whole career. Um, but as somebody who is a sports lover, and I'm a big football fan, but I follow all sorts of sports. I mean, I guess there are obvious things, but what can a normal person do to try and move that needle, like to, to make sport a more accepting place of diversity? Because it's still a huge problem. Yeah, I mean, and it's not just, you know, for a sexual orient. It's there's so many different layers to that because it's not just your sexual preferences. It's also race. It's also religion. It's also socioeconomic backgrounds. All of these things are barriers for different people in different ways. And I think with things like social media, everyone is so focused on themselves and so self-obsessed about how they look and how they're perceived that actually we don't take the time very often to step back and listen to other people's stories and other people's hardships, other people's struggles, and how we can help other people in other minorities. Because at the end of the day, the more minorities that can come together and listen to each other, understand each other, I mean, we're stronger together in numbers. And I think the more that people can be open to listening and open to trying to understand where you know, different people or where they come from, their sexual orientation, their gender, their race, religion, whatever it may be, because having all of those different opinions and having all those different perspectives can help expand the way that you see the world. So just taking the time to listen is, for me, is really important to help move that needle of progress. Yeah. And I was thinking about that in terms of sport, though, I suppose, as there aren't that many out people in the sporting environment, do you call it a sporting environment? I mean, I don't know what sport people call people. Yeah. I love it when you try to talk about sport and you just your whole body goes like, I, just, I get really tense. <laughs> I just don't know what the words are. But in a sporting environment, there aren't that many people who are out. And I think we know that. And you are a very high profile person who is out. Do you feel comfortable within that environment? Yeah, I mean, I feel like diving is a very young sport as well. So it's... Um... That's because you all injure yourself and have to quit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's because it's a stupid thing to do. We've told you. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I tell myself every day. <laughs> but um, yeah, I've always felt comfortable. And I mean, I've always known of people that are out in diving. So there wasn't that worry of like, oh, would I be accepted or not within my sport? You know, obviously there's still worries. But the fact that there, I mean, to be honest, there aren't that many gay people in diving, if you could believe. Mm. But there are definitely enough people that I know other gay athletes and that almost brings a sense of comfort because you're able to know that you're not the only one if that makes sense you're breaking boundaries I suppose as well and I think you seem to do that in quite a lot of ways because you push past that and you've moved into broadcasting and tv and and social media and things like that do you feel like you have to act in a different way as Tom on tv as Tom at home um to be honest not particularly Mm -hmm. I mean I'm not gonna you know go and get absolutely drunk sat on a chat show kind of thing i do that surrounded by friends but, <laughs> I might <laughs> but, you know like there's certain things that you know at the end of the day I am who I am and I, for me I just it's one of those things that if you don't like it then you know I don't particularly care jog on yeah 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I suppose there's a, a big school of thought at the moment around bringing up children in a world that is inclusive and making sure they have access to diverse voices and things like that. But as a same-sex parent... How do you bring up a child that is open and listening to diverse voices? And how do you how do you be a parent, Tom? Is basically my question. Oh, my gosh. How do you be a parent? That's like the million dollar question. <laughs> it really is. I don't have the answer. That's for sure. It'd be great if you do now. Um, but in terms of raising a child that is open to, you know, diversity um, and things like that is, you know, they have to be surrounded by it mm. because if it's all of a sudden different and it's something that they're not used to, of course, they're going to notice those differences yeah so the earlier that kids can be exposed to different kinds of people and different you know different genders gender identity sexual orientations races religions whatever it is the more normal it seems to have so many different people around i think that's true it gives me a lot of hope really because like my son is 10 and it's never occurred to him that it that there is anything unusual about a kid having two dads for example he's vaguely aware that there is kind of prejudice against gay people out there and that Gay people haven't always had the same rights, but that's just a sort of historical curiosity to him. You know, today's kids have got no real context for the idea that it's weird to to not be straight or to not have a traditional family unit. And I can only see that becoming more like that if we work at that. Absolutely. When did you first see Robbie kind of become aware, I suppose, of there being a difference between being a man and being a woman? Or is he aware yet? I don't know if he is even aware. He's, I mean, he is the butchest little thing. <laughs> He's the butchest in the house. We were like, what is going on? Again, I don't think he notices. He understands that some people have uh, a mummy and a daddy. Some people have two daddies and some people have two mummies. So, and some people have just one daddy or just one mummy. Like he's very aware that everybody has a different family unit we just tried to surround him with so many different people that he just feels like he has like a massive family, if that makes sense. There's the saying, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. And you kind of, uh, you know, you notice that when you like when people come over and they're like, oh, it's all right. I'll play with Robbie for a little bit. You're like, oh, my goodness. And you're like, I'll have five minutes to sit down and have a cup of tea. Little things like that. You're like, <laughs> it's just, yeah. It's an amazing feeling, isn't it, Tom? When the kid is 
doing something and you aren't you don't have to be directly involved in it you're just like i i've really missed that in lockdown as well There's quite a lot of the time you find yourself thinking where's my bloody village now yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah i get that <laughs> i've got um, a question about just because i don't get to speak to many top level sports people obviously um but, but I'm really interested in, uh, and this might be a difficult question to phrase. Like, oh, don't worry, I've proven that I cannot ask questions. So yeah, the good thing is you've set such a low bar now that I feel it kind of pressures off me a bit. In diving terms, it's like the previous guy really entered the water badly. They really so. hit the head off a platform, yeah. didn't they? But I'm interested in, um, I think a lot of male sports people probably do, uh, like victory and winning and uh, being the best becomes quite a macho thing, a macho expectation. Like they express their masculinity in the incredibly competitive atmosphere of sport and you know i'm even as someone's just a sports fan there's no doubt that you do sort of feel like a better person if you win a game or if your team wins in a weird way and feel inferior if you've lost so i suppose what i'm asking is how do you keep your idea of yourself as a man and as a guy as a a human like separate from whether things are going well or not in a sporting environment because some days even you aren't going to win and I'm someone that struggles with ups and downs of self-respect. And I always think this about individual sports like tennis, diving. If I was in that environment, I would actually judge myself as a man, as a human, if things weren't going so well in the game. How do you keep the things separate? Yeah, so I mean, that's really interesting. I've never actually even, it's never even crossed my mind if I don't do well or if I do well, that it makes me more or less of a man. I don't think about it in that way. Like if I dive really well, I'm just really happy that I've, you know, done all of my preparation and all of my training is paid off. But also at the same time, if I don't dive well, then I'm kind of like, you know what? I get to go home and I give my son a squeeze and he's not going to know any different. <laughs> like little, for me, it doesn't make me feel any more or less of a man, but I can understand. And I do see that in some people that they get very, very angry and defensive and talk back. And often like, some people on my diving team is not when they're diving, it's when we're playing things like Monopoly or rounders or <laughs> like, you know, doing things outside of the pool where it's, you know, your true inner beast can come out. Where do you think that beast comes from? Where does that anger come from? I think it's an innate thing that some people are more competitive than others. Some people care about winning more than others. And I think that's what creates, uh, especially in sport, a very competitive environment. I find that the people that get most upset about not doing well that do then judge themselves as a man, if you like, are the people that know that they haven't put 100% in. Hmm. If you know that you could have done something better, you could have done something different. If you regret one little thing and you haven't arrived at that competition, knowing that you've done everything in your power to do the best on that day, of course, if you don't do well, you're going to judge yourself. Yeah. And I think just being able to maximize everything that you do, I think for me, I think that's just in my personality to try and perfect everything I do. I'm really smiling here at the idea of someone that is performed sports-wise at the absolute highest level, like is in an Olympic team, but then they're furious playing rounders. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it can get ugly on the British side. I've been to games night at Tom's and it's quite an aggressive atmosphere at times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It feels to me, Tom, like the way you talk about diving is more sort of a a competition with yourself almost, like more trying to make yourself happy about what you're doing then. Is that how you experience it? Do do you think less about I need to beat these other guys and more about I need to just be the best I am going to be? Yeah, I mean, when I was younger, of course, all, all I thought about was beating other people. But at the end of the day... It's an individual sport. I can't control how well or how poorly the other people dive. You're not allowed to knock them off or try and put them off and stuff. Not on purpose anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, like little things like that, I don't think about it. I just try and go and do the best that I can because I know if I do the best that I can, 
the results will look after themselves. If I start worrying and spending energy on other people, then that's when it starts going to crap. It's a very mature outlook. Where does that come from? Yeah. I mean, I would never be that mature. No, I think it's very difficult. One of my heroes is Darren Brown, and he talks about... Um, he's not very mature. Oh, no, he's, he's an absolute baby. <laughs> well, he talks about exactly what Tom was saying, which is uh, if you're playing a, a sport or game or involved in any competitive activity, never focus on trying to outperform the other person because you cannot control what they will do. And I think that's obviously true, and it's true of life as well as sport, but it's an incredibly difficult skill to just yeah, focus on it, yourself. Was it your parents that kind of instilled that in you, Tom? Uh, no, I, it was just a weird thing that I just learned to do. I mean, when I was younger, of course, I used to worry about what other people were doing. But, you know, as you gain experience, you realise that you can't waste any mental energy on what other people are doing if you're in a competition because you can't control it. I've learned to just be able to control the controllables and not try and control things that are just completely, you know, out of your reach because it's just completely draining. I mean, you're absolutely right, but I just find it so difficult. I, I think one of the key skills in life is to only obsess over the things that you can control but I've just never been very I mean what's your tips top tips with how do we do it you just have to take each day as it comes as soon as you start worrying about tomorrow and you start worrying about next week and you worry about next month you're spending so much energy on something that isn't even there yet being able to spend energy on what's happening in the here and now and that that's something that's come from me doing I do a lot of mindfulness stuff you know, I do 10 minutes a day. And at the beginning, it was really hard for me to do that 10 minutes because I'd be thinking, okay, after this 10 minutes, I need to be doing this. Oh, okay. Exactly. That's what I'm like. Every time I try and meditate, I'm just meditating about what's coming oh, next. My problem is when they <laughs> say like, feel the breath circulate around your bones. And I'm like, well, my breath isn't circulating around my breath. That's biologically impossible. And all I can think about is how ridiculous what they're saying is. So how do you get your mind to go quiet? It is really difficult. And it took me months, if not years, and I'm still perfecting it. It's not something that is just something that's a quick fix. And some days it's easier than others but if you can just allow yourself that time and know that you've given yourself 10 minutes and whether you spend your time worrying about what's happening next or what's already happened you're still going to be there for the same amount of time you're not going to be able to get what's happening next done any quicker mm. so just being able to resign yourself to the fact that you're going to be there for 10 minutes helps massively and I think even starting knitting and crochet that's another form of mindfulness where i could just be completely present uh, rather than worrying about what's to come i did see you'd um, knitted yourself a pair of trunks which looks lovely but surely is quite impractical because will won't yeah how well will they do in the water do you think i mean i haven't tried them in the water <laughs> <laughs> have a bath later and let us know how it goes <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> you mentioned um, the role models when you were growing up, but who do you admire now? Oh, gosh, good question. Um, he looks pleased with himself as well. I've got to tell you, Tom. And you can say me. I mean, that is one of the options. Oh, well, of course, you, Michael. Like... <laughs> Apart from Michael Chakravarti, <laughs> who on this earth do you admire? That's a tough question because there's lots of people for lots of different reasons. Mm. To be honest, I've always admired my dad, for example. I mean, I lost my dad in 2011, but there's so many things that at the time when my dad was alive, I used to find extremely embarrassing, extremely annoying. And he used to do my head in because I was like, oh my God, dad, you're embarrassing me. Like, why are you doing this? Why are you saying this? Are you doing it on purpose? Oh, but, this is what my kids are like. So maybe eventually they'll give me the benefit for that. They will, for sure. Because now, like, as a parent, you start to learn to realize everything that they've like my parents have done for me and how much they went through. And then not only that, but my dad just had this character that was, that just didn't give a crap about what other people thought. And I think that's something that I've now seen from a different perspective and now understand why he was that way. He would just try and make people laugh and try and bring positive energy and be happy. And there's something that's 
really powerful about that, about not caring about what the people around are thinking as long as they're making the person that they're with laugh. So do I. It's an enviable quality. That. I do not have that quality. Nor do I. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, Tom, you are very recognisable to a large number of people. I mean, it must be harder to not care about, you know, what people are thinking about you when a large number of people do have a bit. Or is it easier because you think, oh, well, everyone's got opinions and you can sort of switch off from it a bit. I, I'm interested in what it's like to hang on to your self-image as a man when you know that millions of people have an idea of you? Yeah, I mean, like, people can think that they know who I am because they see what is on social media and they see, like, but they, you know, they don't live with me. They don't understand how sometimes it's really challenging with sleep, being a parent, how sometimes my training is really difficult. Sometimes, you know, every single day I wake up completely sore and everything hurts and it's the amount of pain that you have to go through to be an elite athlete and all of these different things that you constantly have to deal with that you just don't speak out about that often because, you know, it's what I do. It's like part and parcel of who I am as an athlete and how I train and how I perform in competitions. You know, I really admire the people that speak out about mental health and about what's going on in their lives and things like that, because it is something that you can never understand what somebody is going through yeah. because, you know, some people just don't talk about it. And, and particularly, I mean, this not the first people to point this out, but especially with men, it does seem as if we're often not raised to be particularly emotionally open or analyse our emotions very well. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, it's almost like you say, not manly to cry and not manly to talk about your emotions. It's not manly to not be okay. When actually like, if you're a human being and you're hurting and you need help, you should be able to speak about it. I'm sure at some point everybody has felt the way that those people that are struggling have felt. And especially now during this time, it's so important to reach out to your friends and family and just check that they're okay. You've talked about all these different people that you think have been role models in your past and in the present now. If you were to go to, imagine like a Build-A-Bear workshop, but it was like you were building a man, like a Build-A-Man workshop, which sounds like heaven to me. <laughs> what would your three, like the three kind of biggest building blocks that you would put into those men, um, the best qualities? I think for me, confidence in who you are. Mm, yeah, very good. No matter how feminine, how masculine, whatever it is, just being confident and owning who you are, I think is a an amazing quality to have. I would say empathy and understanding mm. to allow someone to be able to you know take the time to listen want to understand and want to get to know someone and understand the way that they might feel and how their actions might affect other people and to be honest i think just being able to have a sense of humor mm. i think that a sense of humor can really lighten a mood in so many different scenarios like so the combination of confidence empathy uh, to be able to read the room with the sense of humour is important, obviously. Yeah, I think uh, a sense of humour is a really nice companion thing with confidence because we've all met men that are much too confident <laughs> and not very humorous about themselves, and that is a bad combination. Yeah, exactly. I think having that combination of the two is, uh, well, all three of those, confidence, empathy, and a sense of humour. Yeah, you've built your bear well there. Built your man. Oh, I'll, I'll have him, please, Tom. Just send him directly to me. <laughs> it doesn't seem like my idea of heaven at all. I would just be like waiting outside while all these people leave with their perfect men, feeling more. <laughs> more <laughs> inferior <laughs> thank you so much for joining us tom that's been great thank you so much tom we're really bad at ending podcasts so um this is the end yeah we, we just faff about for a bit and then hope for the conversation to uh, peter out would you like to plug anything or anyone oh that sounded a bit rude didn't mean it like that. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well. Oh, Michael. I mean, no, there's really nothing that's exciting going on in my life, I'm afraid. I think we should keep this in because it's so refreshing to hear a podcast and someone saying, nah, actually, I'm good. <laughs> that's never happened in history of podcasts before. <laughs> no, it's just been fun to have a little chat, to be honest. It's been great, yeah. And let us know how the experiment with the crocheted swing trunks go in the bath. Oh, I will. I will. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I do a proper, like, Tom Daly, thank you very much? Do like a real, like, do a real one. Makes us seem like the absolute business. Let me just tap my papers again. Yeah, we're going to tap our papers. <clears throat> there we go. Tom Daly, thank you very much. <laughs> very welcome. Slick. <laughs> thank you for listening to mankind you can find us on social media at mankind podcast on twitter and instagram well, you can send us an email mankindpodcast at gmail.com why not do that we will read it as well next week we are joined by james mcveigh from the vamps people say i'll oh, go into the gym six times a week that's healthy your prime fitness but like you might physically feel that you're strong and able to lift a certain amount of dumbbells but mentally like i was an absolute dickhead when i had five percent body fat and looked a certain way like well that's that then thank you for being here yeah that's that then is as good a way as any to end a podcast I suppose. that's that then go on with your life <laughs> see you later have some thoughts of your own maybe we should just do an outro that just says five stars or nothing <laughs> <laughs>